Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Herpetological Highlights. Uh, my name is Tom Major and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. And in this 52nd episode, we're going to be talking about salamanders and specifically, mm. well, salamanders climbing, and maybe some reasons why they climb. You might not think of them as climbing animals. And then we're going to go on and talk about salamanders meeting a sticky demise. Yeah, I like how this is this is the second episode in a row that has unexpected arboreality. Ah. I, I quite like that. I hadn't seen that until you mentioned them climbing. But yeah, there you go. And Segue from the last episode. And because it's episode 52 and we do an episode every two weeks, it should mean that we've been podcasting for two years. I'm not sure that it actually does exactly, but we've done two years worth of podcasts <laughs> in whatever time it's taken us to do them. So that's quite a good little milestone that we should probably uh, take note of and move on. Yay! Yes! So, uh, yeah. Add in, add in party sound effects here. Yay! I'm probably not going to do that, but... <laughs> <laughs> If there's an easily uh, if there's an easily accessible party noise, then you will have just heard it. Um, but yeah, no, it should be an interesting episode. I think uh, certainly salamanders. Um, we've done a couple of episodes on salamanders before. We did slimy salamander sociality. Do you remember that? We've definitely done one. Yeah. What's the second one? Maybe it was just that one. But we've talked about them before. I think because I'm sure we've talked about salamanders in some form or another, or more than that one occasion. I would hope so. Otherwise, this episode is putting putting right a very, very deep yeah. and severe We've wrong. We've definitely done... Because salamanders deserve a lot of attention. They're wonderful. They do, yeah. We've definitely done salamander species of the bi-weeks before. Because I remember that we did that one which was cl- it was climbing. It was on a leaf in the photo. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, the skinny orangey one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so from like yeah. Central America somewhere. Yeah, so I think like, yeah, there is definitely a precedent for climbing salamanders, but um, now we're finally addressing it properly. Well, unless they just put that salamander on the leaf to take a nice photo. Oh, such a cynic. <laughs> yeah, they probably did. It's part of my job, I'm afraid. They probably did do that. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's get into the first paper, shall we? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so... Elizabeth Blackman, Navarro, 2018, Salamander Climbing Behaviour Varies Among Species and is Correlated with Community Composition, published in Behavioural Ecology. Mm. So, unfortunately, animals in the wild can't all just get along all the time. Um, difference... Not even close. No. Not even close. Some of them don't even try. No, some of them, they're just unnecessarily cruel to each other. And it's not... <laughs> just different species that can't get along you know animals experience competition from their own species as well and um basically salamanders although they seem quite chill they are often seemingly likely able to coexist only by splitting up the habitat and using different parts of it so often there's lots of similar species which on the surface may appear to live in kind of similar niches so they might eat the same stuff they might do similar things in similar places but actually they they could well be secretly kind of partitioning the habitat in ways that aren't immediately obvious to us or that you you know you can't see unless you unless you carefully study them so this could be as simple as not necessarily a salamander example but say for birds um they might use different areas of the canopy 
um, and they might eat fruit at different stages of development, etc., etc. Being nocturnal instead of diurnal is another good way to split up habitat. So animals yeah. in general manage to avoid competing with each other by using the same habitat in subtly different ways. And um, in this example, we're talking about salamanders from the genus Plethodon, which are also known as woodland salamanders because they love it in the woods. And uh, they're a North American genus of salamanders and they don't have lungs, so they need it nice and moist. And they also don't have an aquatic larval stage, which is quite weird. So their um, their eggs actually hatch out into fully formed little tiny salamanders. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very cool. It is cool, isn't it? Yeah, they don't yeah, they don't yeah. muck about. Skip all that tadpole nonsense. Skip all that warm up stage. Straight to salamander. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting about these plethodontid salamanders, because the genus Plethodon is in the family Plethodontidae, um, they actually are often found in places where there's up to five different species in one place. And the species often come in different sizes as a means of splitting up the resources. And they call this um, guild-based partitioning. So say there's Mm. five species of salamanders, you'll have a teeny tiny one, a small one, a medium one, a medium large, and then a monster and extra large extra extra large yeah and yeah. and that's how they'll, uh, they'll they'll seemingly split up the habitat and in this case they were looking at three different species of salamander in detail in the blue ridge mountains of southwest virginia which sounds like a really nice place to be well before you jump into those those species of salamander and the sort of details on them i did want to draw attention to just how dramatic this uh this selection for taking different niches can be i mean everybody can think of a good example in nature that has driven a physical change to an animal. I mean, Darwin's finches are the best, or probably the most well-known example of that, right? Yes. Different niches driving different morphologies. But they pointed a really cool example by, um, it's been documented by Adams and, and Rolf in 2000, that showed not only, well, it wasn't a sort of speciation level thing. So they had two species of salamander, in some areas, they uh, lived together, and some areas, they didn't. And within the two species, when they were living together, they tended, tended to have different, uh, what did they say, different jaws and different sort of skull structure going on. But when they were not living together, they both had more similar jaws and head, head shapes. So it looked like you put these two salamanders in the same place, and that drove changes in the morphology of the salamanders to try and exploit different prey types. But that was within within populations and just only required seemed to be only requiring two uh, two species being in the same place to actually drive Wow. Some pretty and did the, fundamental morphological changes, yeah. Did the same differences emerge in different places where they were together as well? Yeah, so so it's by the sounds of it they were on a species boundary. Right. And then they had transects that ran from one species into the other species, so there was this contact zone. Uh, yeah. And in that contact zone, that's where the uh, uh, changes to the head and the jaw to uh, separate their, their prey, potentially separating their prey, uh, occurred. That's wild, isn't it? It can happen really... Mm. Yeah, and these, these things can happen really fast. Like, they were talking... They talk about in the introduction of this paper where um, there were... Uh, Anolis sagrii, which is the brown anole, right, introduced into 
um, Florida, and the Anolis carolinensis that are native there were quickly forced higher up trees by the invaders, and they developed larger toe pads. Well, they evolved basically just by selection pressure, a larger toe pads to climb higher trees very, very quickly um, yeah. because of the incursion of this invasive species, which, yeah, it's a slightly, slightly different phenomenon because it's not feeding morphology, but it's the same general idea, isn't it? They, um, well, ex- there's a necessity. Yeah, exactly. Com- intense competition drives some sort of separation. Yeah. 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 That was a paper. Yeah. That was a paper by. Stuart et al. 2014. Mm. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. I know this... And it really does play up how important competition is in animals' lives. So in this paper that we're looking at now, the, uh, the authors looked at three different sizes of salamander. They looked at one tiny one, which is Plethodon cinereus, a.k.a. the red-backed salamander. So this is their miniature one. And this is a really beautiful little salamander. It's got a lovely thick red stripe down its back. And they also looked at an intermediate size, and that was Plethodon montanus, a.k.a. the northern grey-cheeked salamander, so named for its grey cheeks, and it also has a dark grey body. So it's a dark grey body with grey cheeks, hence the name northern grey-cheeked salamander. And then the final species they looked at was the big, large Plethodon glutinosus, which... Mm. is also called the northern slimy salamander which yeah it's not the greatest of names is it because aren't most salamanders somewhat slimy this is what i'm saying so why is this one called the northern slimy salamander they're all slimy are they extraordinarily slimy perhaps they are it might they they might be extraordinarily slimy it's basically the hagfish of the salamander world the hag salamander Mm. yeah but um, okay, just just um, I <laughs> I just jumped on Wikipedia because I was happy. I was looking at pictures of them as you were reading them out, <laughs> and under common names, it says the northern slimy salamander is called slimy because it is slimy. <laughs> wow, that's newsflash. Also referred to as uh, uh, viscid salamander. Viscid. That is what that says. Grey spotted, uh, slippery or sticky depending on what source is consulted, but there's no citation for this entire section. Well, even the scientific and name, glutinosus, kind of... That sounds like glutinous. <laughs> maybe they're especially sticky and, and, and gooey. Yeah, maybe they are just the gooeyest salamanders around. I think this is one of those times where we should ask if anyone's ever touched one, and if you have. How sticky was it? Is this name Oh, justified? that's great. This is going to be the... This, this soft shell turtle thing it is yeah this is great (laughs) i want to hear how glutinous these glutinosas are so tell us um but yeah although if you find one and you're like i'm gonna touch it because we need to know make sure you don't have any like dodgy chemicals on your hands or anything like that you know amphibians are sensitive to that stuff even if they are especially slimy that is a good um kind of warning yes that is a good public service announcement don't don't touch salamander just because we want to know. But if you have maybe touched one, then you, you already know. And don't let that knowledge go to waste. Yeah. <laughs> don't let that potential endangerment of a salamander go to waste. <laughs> maybe they like being picked up. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's why they're, they're sticky. They really, so they stick to you. So yeah. you can't leave them don't alone. Leave. Yeah. Yeah. So um, essentially, they were looking at these three salamanders. 
They wanted to know firstly if the different species climb different amounts, which is a you know good thing to find out. Uh, the big ones climbing more, or the little ones climbing more. And they also wanted yep. to see whether or not the amount of competing salamanders, both of their own species and of different species, would influence how much the small, medium and large salamanders were climbing. With the prediction that more salamanders would mean more climbing as competition on the ground increased. Mm, yeah, you've got to find somewhere else to be because you're going to get bullied by these other salamanders. Yeah, which makes total sense, you know. if there was a Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You can fully empathise with that. Salmon are wanting to get up high to get out of the way of the big bullies. Um, yeah. So I was reading the methods and uh, I was thinking, okay, right, yeah, they did some transects. And then I saw the word crawled. <laughs> yes, I also saw the word crawled. And it sounds like they crawled quite a distance <laughs> looking for salamanders. It's <laughs> so funny. I love that they actually put the word crawled in the method as well because it's, it is distinct from walking. Yeah. They weren't walking yeah. these transects, they were crawling them, and they were looking for salamanders in straight lines, um, like three metres wide and however many metres long. And uh, they were looking to see if they... Well, first of all, they were looking for these three different species, and then they were cataloguing whether or not they were on the ground or climbing. Uh, well, they were one or the other. Um, none of them were flying. Well, and climbing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I did, they didn't see any flying, and they didn't see any swimming, I don't think, either. No. No. But it was climbing, non-climbing. Yes. Uh, so. And they were only counting the salamanders that they could see. They weren't worrying about the unseen salamanders underground. They weren't trying to get any measure of kind of um, the abundance because they were literally only looking to see if the salamanders were reacting to the competition that was going on at the time that the transect was being conducted. Um, so the only thing that was relevant was how many salamanders were about and whether or not that was influencing the other ones to be climbing. Hmm. Yeah. And they did quite well. They found a hell of a lot of salamanders. They found 2,189 of the small little redback salamanders. They found uh, 420 of the northern grey-cheeked salamanders and 355 of the slimy boys. And uh, mm. yeah. That's a lot of salamanders. Yeah. and all- Nearly 3,000. Yes, it is... A, a gross amount of salamanders really it sounds a little bit overwhelming um but then i suppose maybe some of those were the same salamanders seen multiple times well didn't they put their transects quite far apart to kind of negate that they didn't repeat their transects we surveyed each transect three times ah case closed okay so, so yeah maybe they were the same yeah there's a good possibility they were. It'd be, it'd be weird not to do repeat measures for transects. It would. It, it, would, it would be weird. So, um, thankfully, they did. And salamanders were, as they found out, more... They Well, let's get into the results, shall we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we've, we've, we've said why, why people should care. I mean, there could be some crazy salamander competition going on that's driving them to climb trees. Yeah, and what was interesting was I the mean, one... climb trees. They were just on leaves, but... yeah. You know, they weren't they weren't like up in the rafters. It was categorised as climbing, wasn't it? If they were more than an inch above the ground, which uh... <laughs> yeah, which is <laughs> which is pretty embarrassing. But I suppose for a salamander, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> Mate, I feel like I'm climbing if I'm more than an inch off the ground. I'm strictly terrestrial. Yeah, as soon as you go up on the second floor of a building, oh boy, just get antsy. Um, yeah. And what they found out was this. Salamanders were more likely to climb when there was more vegetation cover around, which is not really surprising. More stuff to climb, they're more likely to climb it. Uh, but also, smaller salamanders were more likely to climb than medium salamanders, and medium salamanders were less, were more likely to climb than large ones. So basically, the smaller the salamander, the more likely they are to climb. 
now. But yeah, when things get a bit complicated, yeah, there's interactions between these species. Exactly. So if they were all just alone doing their own thing, yeah, that probably probably that pattern would hold out. Yes. And, but they're most certainly not alone. But it's not just competition from other species, but also competition from their own species, which affect how likely they are to climb. So, right. redback salamanders, the tiny little guys, when their numbers were really high, they were much more likely to climb. So if there's lots of little salamanders around, the little salamanders that are there are like, well, I'm going to get up off the ground, try and avoid these other salamanders around here. But they were less likely. <laughs> this place is getting crowded. Yeah, it's too crazy. But these tiny little redback salamanders were less likely to climb when either of the bigger species of salamanders were around. So it seemed as though big salamanders being about put them off climbing for some reason. But overall, they were the mm. species that was most likely to be found climbing, which makes sense. You'd think a small-bodied salamander, it takes less exertion for them to get up into the branches and stuff. So they're going to be more likely to climb, which makes sense. The middle-sized P. montanus, the grey-cheeked salamanders, they climbed more only when there was more vegetation to climb. They didn't care how many other salamanders were around or of what species. Competition didn't affect how likely they were to climb. They just climbed when there was more stuff to climb. That being said, that being said, we don't have a sort of number that indicates density. So they've got numbers observed on individual transects. But we are talking about, well, in some transects, almost like five to ten times as many uh, small salamanders compared to the larger ones. Which you would expect smaller, you know, you'd, you'd find more smaller species and fewer large species just by uh, virtue of larger species needing more resources, right? Yeah, it makes sense. But I wonder if the medium salamanders... Maybe there would be uh, changes to how much they climb if their density of, or, or their own density, if they were just more of them. Maybe it just hasn't hit that critical threshold before they start, you know, you start being able to see that pattern. Because the difference between a few salamanders and a lot of salamanders for the small one is a much bigger difference than the difference between uh, places with a few medium salamanders and a lot of medium salamanders. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think, um, it, as you kind of said there, the carrying capacity of medium salamanders is probably much less high. So um, Potentially, yeah. Yeah, so they, they perhaps don't have that same competition. I suppose the only way to find that out would be to artificially put a load of middle-sized and large-sized salamanders in a place and, uh, yeah, see if they start climbing as a result of that increased competition. Yeah, I just wonder if there wasn't a big enough change in the number of intermediate salamanders to elicit a decent change in uh, how they were using the, the area. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and they certainly are capable of climbing because they did see them in trees, or at least in bushes. <laughs> uh, Dense understory. Yeah, and uh, finally, the massive, slimy Plethodon glutinosus. They were eight times more likely to climb when there were lots of the tiny redback salamanders around. Um, so it seemed that they were responding to the competition from the small salamanders. But it's important to note that overall they were actually the least likely to climb. And they actually seemed to prefer hanging around near animal burrows on the ground, which the authors uh, postulate might allow them a nice safe retreat and also potentially a fruitful foraging ground. Perhaps other insects and things are hanging around near these burrows. But... Um, 
yeah, they actually did react to the Redback Salamanders and climb more as a result of their high numbers. Um, yeah, which is a little bit difficult to keep in mind because you've also got the sorts the more the more small salamanders there are, the more small sal- salamanders climb, but they're also negatively impacted by the larger salamanders climbing. Yes, right? yeah. So, the, yeah, the bushes are getting quite busy at this point when there's loads and loads. Well, it gets, yeah, it gets complicated, doesn't it? And then you've got these intermediate ones that seem to... Well, they suggest in the paper that they can do what they want and it's purely uh, seem to be described by uh, the amount of vegetation that's available to them. So they suggest that maybe these guys have, I don't know, a... a more flexible lifestyle, so they're making use of materials that, or or two two different resources, so they're not in direct competition. Which one are you talking about? Or they're more flexible, so they don't have to Which be. Salamander is this? The the middle size. Piedmontanus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the lack of the lack of uh, effect of having other salamanders around it could be uh, driven by sort of flexibility. Mm. So it doesn't need to to deal with other salamanders because it's using. Uh, a greater diversity of resources, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like the red-backed salamanders are too small. You know, it's like almost like a Goldilocks yep. conundrum here. So you've got yeah. the red-backed ones are too little, and the slimy guys, the glutinosus, they're too big. But just in the middle, where it's just right, the P. montanus can actually have access to tons of different resources. They can eat small things, they can eat bigger things, but also they're in that middle ground where they can fit into smaller spaces, you know, little crevices, use interesting... Um, terrestrial habitats but also they're they're small enough that they can climb with relative ease so uh yeah, yeah. they're just generally kind of a more potentially uh generalist in some aspects of their ecology and a little bit more flexible which is cool well, it certainly suggests uh, they're a bit more uh what's the right word released from the competition pressures from the other two species yeah whereas the other two species seem to be uh yeah, you know, actually interacting in quite a quite a big way. Mm, which yeah, it 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 would be really interesting to get some kind of um, quantification of ease of life. Like how much more often do ease these how much more often do these middle sized <laughs> salamanders encounter nice, delicious, juicy prey that they can eat as compared to the bigger ones and the smaller ones? Because it would be kind of cool if you found out that like the optimum. Um, size to be in that environment was middle and then the other two species were like ah oh, fine the middle's taken we'll go small and big <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe I wonder I wonder if something like stress levels or something like that could be used as a proxy oh god imagine being small and overall more anxious what a nightmare yeah well I, I imagine these little sand- salamanders are they have to be pretty on point you saw how dramatic the the change in sort of behavior was when there were too many of them. Yeah. That is a sign of an animal that gets stressed out when there's lots of them about and has to start climbing up massive bits of vegetation. That must be ah oh, so much effort for a tiny salamander. Yeah. And then you've got the blooming a daunting task. The blooming grey cheek middle-sized ones just taking life for granted. They don't care who's around. Yeah. They'll climb when they damn well please. Then a great big one comes and sits on your leaf and you fall off because <laughs> yeah. he's too heavy. Yeah. Huh. Outrageous. Terrible. But um, yeah, the take-home message of this paper is kind of like there's this large species dominating the forest floor. Um, the small species is dominating understory vegetation. 
and the intermediate sized species is flexible in its use of available microhabitats. Um, and what it does highlight... It seems to be having a nicer life. Yeah, it just seems to be having the best time, just chilling about, doing as it pleases. Um, but there is also this quite intriguing evidence of behavioural plasticity, depending on who's around and how much stuff there is to climb on. So more vegetation equals more climbing. And also, similarly, more competition from smaller salamanders elicits more climbing in both the red-backed and the um, slimy salamanders. So it's quite cool. There's some salamander decision-making going on at some level here, which is really nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how um, how the different behaviours impact their survival or anything like that. I, get, I mean, I feel like that's a question I bring up for most of these papers is, okay, we've documented this change in behaviour. How does that translate to actual survival? Uh, yeah, is it making a difference or are the ones climbing up there just... They get pushed out and they also have a really rough time and get picked off by, by birds or something. Hmm, interesting study to do. Just put some plasticine models out of salamanders high and low and see which ones get predated more. That'd be quite easy to work out. Yeah, possibly. I wonder if inverts take a lot of the smaller salamanders. That might be quite tricky to um, to record on a pla- uh, plasticine model. Hmm, yeah, they might not fall for it. Because they wouldn't be visual, yeah. visual hunters. The birds, the birds would work quite nicely with that. I've got a solution, mate. Get one slimy salamander, give it a good squeeze, get it in a bowl, uh, coat the plasticine models with the slime, stick them on the leaves. Yep. Not only do they smell like a salamander, but also they ain't going nowhere. Not with that sticky slime. <sighs> and the sticky slime is, is sustainable. I mean, you don't have to kill the salamander to get it. You just have to sort of rub the salamander onto the model. Mate, spare me your ethics. <laughs> we need the slime today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i think we'll we'll only use sustainably sourced um glutinosis slime i don't want i don't want some kind of unsustainable sort of uh side yeah. industry free free ranging salamander slime yeah and you know heart yeah. you don't take all their slime you take like a third give them a little insect as a sort of thank you parting yeah maybe a little little place to recuperate Little little salamander spa day. Well, we don't want to go too far, but potentially. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that essentially salamanders are climbing around doing stuff. It's quite interesting. And, um, and we've kind of started there talking about salamander predation. Obviously, salamanders are by no means top of the food oh. chain. Um, no, but, but before we go, I know you've got a really nice segue and that's a beautiful segue, but uh, I'm going to I'm gonna just cast it aside because I have an additional <laughs> point. Um my other thought with this was, I wonder how um, their resources are different for the ground dwelling and the uh, vegetation using ones, especially when it's the same species. For the like the little salamanders, are they are they also shifting diets to make use of that that higher vegetation, or is it the same sort of thing they're eating, but it just occurs everywhere? I can't imagine that's the case, and they've got to be sort of shifting shifting diet along with uh where they're present yeah i mean you get different bugs on the leaves and on the floor right that makes perfect sense yeah they must be yeah maybe but the fact that it's competition mediated suggests that the lesser resource is up high because if they can they like to be on the floor okay yeah okay yeah 
So maybe they are, there is some sort of fitness trade-off for going up onto the leaves. Mm. Or maybe, I mean, it could even be that they're just lazy. They don't like it up on the leaves. There's a predation risk. <laughs> There's a, okay, how about this? That's the, this is the maximum complicated scenario. So on the floor... It's nice and safe. They don't have to do a lot. They can't be bothered. They just want to chill. But when there's competition, they're forced up into the canopy. They have to expend extra effort. But it's actually better up there. They just don't realize it. There's bugs up Mm. there. And only those brave pathfinders willing to take on this new world up in the canopy actually ever get to experience the delicious delights of the special tree bugs. Exactly. Yeah, really fast but risky life up in the Live in fast. the in the leaves. Yeah. But slow and steady and calm salamanders. Yeah. Stay down in the uh, cryptozoic sort of area. <laughs> ten out of ten for use of cryptozoic two weeks later. Uh, yeah. Um yeah, nice. Well, I'm gonna do my segue again. People will still remember. Yeah, please it. do. I'm, yada yada I'm, yada. I'm they get any and I'm glad you gave it a good review though, because I'm still um, stinging from the damning review you gave my segue a few weeks ago, but um, no, but this one, this one's great. <laughs> I'm well impressed. Yeah, you know, sometimes salamanders get eaten. On that topic, paper two incoming. Okay, what do we have for paper two? We have Moldawan, uh, Alex Smith. Baldwin, Bartley, Rowlandson, and Wynan. A 2019 paper published in Ecology. Nature published in Ecology. That's not right, is it? No, that's not that's right. That's what it says on that's my not right APA at all. as well. I, I would have said the same thing. That is not it's true. Not. It is published in Scientific Naturalist, I do believe. The Scientific Naturalist. Yes, that's where it is. Um, yeah, 2019, brand new. We have nature's pitfall trap. Salamanders as a rich prey for carnivorous plants in a nutrient-poor northern bog ecosystem. <laughs> so, just where you think salamanders have a decent life, they, you know, okay, they've found a way to deal with living side by side by, you know, larger salamanders or similar sized salamanders. And then, not only do they have to deal with birds and other amphibians and and, and snakes and reptiles and mammals and everything else that wants to eat them plants do too it's a tough life it's a tough life in the northern mate it's rough and um i've got to say i love it on the odd occasion that we get a twist like this and we uh have an opportunity to read something which comes really largely i mean obviously they are um amphibian researchers first and foremost but the kind of angle of this paper is a different branch of science that we wouldn't necessarily ordinarily be exposed to it's much more kind of botanical in nature and uh yeah i learned a hell of a lot about these pitch plants which i really enjoyed um you know when we did that species of the bye week about the extinct massive reptile and it just completely baffled us even that was quite exciting of its own way it's a it's a daunting it's a daunting task to to just sort of even even just for a paper or two move over into a different section of i mean it's just biology i mean they're actually quite yes they're very different but it's still pretty much the same field it's just such a massive and complicated field yeah that's just, yeah but the the second line of the paper um gave a little bit of an indication of the evolutionary origin story of carnivorous plants or at least some of them and um, 
they said it's a way to so basically plants evolve carnivory eating other well eating animals as a means of combating the fact that they live in nutrient poor often wet open environments so basically if you're a plant and you're living in a place with not many nutrients you can't suck it out from the soil so what do you do eat the animals which is yeah you know the nutrients comes to you exactly yeah so kudos to you plants that's pretty badass eating the animals and uh this northern pitcher plant we're going to be talking about saracenia purpurea is found across the east of north america from the gulf coast of florida all the way north to nova scotia and west to the rocky mountains so quite a wide-ranging plant actually and um i think i have seen this one i think this is actually a plant i have viewed with my eyes wow that's cool where did you where did you see it uh new england way wow nice it's very day of the triffids in its appearance Mm. these huge bell-shaped leaves very um they look very kind of vascular um there's sort of like a red deep red base color with this like huge bulbous bell-shaped sort of uh base and then the top is like half open half enclosed and there's all these like really dark red veins on a green background they look they look wild um and they are their leaves i mean they they are wild yeah and uh it's hard to get your head around the fact that those are the leaves so basically all the leaves are these modified pitchers and uh it's yeah they hold water inside them and when an animal lands inside this pitcher it's broken down by inquiline microorganisms and digestive enzymes i didn't know what inquiline meant apparently it's an animal that exploits the living space of another so another example would be an insect that lays its eggs in a gall produced by another insect essentially the plants leaves being within them is a home for these insects and you call that inquiline well microorganisms not insects but you call that an inquiline microorganism that makes its home inside the living space of another which is quite cool that's true oh well i don't i'm saying true makes it sound really really crazy um that's just symbiosis right would be a nice yeah alternative word of saying that it would be um a mutualism mutualism that's better yeah not symbiosis mutualism well it is it's it's symbiosis specifically mutualism um, yeah, I prefer mutualism. Well, yeah, symbiosis is like all three of them, isn't it? We talked about this on the podcast before. They're so hard to remember. It's, symbiosis is either parasitism, mutualism, or commensalism, right? And this is—they're both benefiting because the microorganisms get a sweet place to hang out, but also they aid in the digestion of things which end up in the pitcher plants. So the pitcher plants like sweet, yeah, come and live in my bell. It's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but all sorts of insects fall prey to these northern pitcher plants. They've been found to eat insects from 115 different families. So these are unscrupulous plants. If you're small and you're crawling around, you could bet they'll eat you. And uh, <laughs> despite that, vertebrate prey is less common. There is a precedent for this in uh, tropical species, and they do discuss that in the paper. So this isn't like the first time ever it's been seen or anything like that. However... Um, it is unusual for reasons which we'll get onto. But this study takes place in quite an unusual environment. Uh, I said earlier on that this carnivory often evolves in places which are open and low nutrient. And this area certainly seems to be a candidate for that kind of an environment. 
It's an acidic kettle lake bog in Ontario, Canada, in low-altitude boreal wetlands of Western Algonquin Provincial Park. And uh, I didn't know what a kettle lake was. Did you, Ben? You're a, you're a geographer, same as me. Is this similar to a pothole, so where a chunk of ice left over from a glacier has been covered in sort of sediment, and then later when it's warmed back up, that ice has dropped out, so then it... The sediment on top has also dropped down and you're left with just a sort of relatively circular, small lake. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, Full. yeah. You can call them potholes too. Oh, okay. So perhaps that's just a I sort think of so. local, um, a local name. No I, think, no, I think Kettle Lake's pretty legit. Well, so, okay. I think I've always used pothole there. Okay. So Kettle Lake slash pothole, that's what it is, exactly as you described. Yeah. It's a, a feature of a, a, a previously glaciated environment. Um Big up geography. And uh, yeah, there's... <laughs> there's uh, hey man, it's good for a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, it comes up. It's really nice when you look at a landscape and sort of have at least some kind of glimmer of understanding of why it looks the way it does. Um, yeah. But there's no fish. There's no fish in this kettle lake. So, you know, that's a bit... No, f- the fish are too weak. Mm. They can't handle it. They can't... They probably... It's a very harsh environment. Yeah, it's got very low pH, hasn't it? So, um, yeah. yeah, fish don't tend to do well in that environment so yeah there's no fish but it's very mossy which is nice sphagnum moss dominates mm, and the sphag- sphagnum moss kind of forms a blanket i actually went out on a um, blanket bog recently i did some demonstrating on a wetlands uh, field trip there's blanket bogs in anglesey really close to where i am and um the mm. sphagnum moss forms a mat completely over the water underneath and you can run across the lake it's, it's bonkers it's kind of unsettling. That's insane. Yeah. And kind of risky, I would feel. Yeah, we took like 100 students onto the blanket bog. The bog weathered the blow. It was amazing. It was actually incredible. And then we were poking big sticks down through the moss and measuring the depth of the lake. And it was staggering. It was like, you know, six meters of water beneath our feet. And we were just running around on top of this moss. It was all wobbly. Really? Oh. It was crazy. Oh. Yeah. Sounds like you're tempting fate poking holes in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we poked very small holes in it. Quite a few of the students got wet, but it was very funny. Uh, my main job was like standing in places where students were likely to fall through and dragging them out. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but yeah, so good, safe, fun. Yeah, good, somewhat safe, fun. And uh, yeah, this there's a mossy environment, and the moss gives the pitcher plants something to take hold on. And they, you know, you can imagine there's these kind of open areas of moss, uh, pitcher plants sitting on the moss, and um, salamanders apparently roaming around looking for things to eat exactly so these scientists were studying the spotted salamanders uh what's the scientific name of a spotted salamander uh ambistoma maculatum Ooh, very nice very descriptive scientific name and uh yeah they were looking using drift fences they were counting how many were emerging from these ponds and in early august 2018 they noticed there was a few pitcher plants which contained salamanders and they thought what surely not so um wait a second that's odd and so they elected to start surveying the uh, pitcher plants a little more thoroughly and what they found was that later into august and into september they surveyed the pitch plants and found that 20% of them contained salamanders in a period mm. which coincided with the salamanders' max exod- mass exoduses from the pond. Uh, the number basically plateaued quickly, as you'd expect. The salamanders are kind of leaving this pond where they've 
spent some time growing and you know whatever or is it are they coming out are they they're meta they are aren't they they're um they're recent metamorphs these salamanders they're not adults leaving their vernal pools they're actually recent metamorphs yeah, it, it, it's juvenile dispersal yes yes and um, yes the bulk of them were were juveniles although uh eight of them were adults so we have 35 juveniles captured overall there were 43 salamanders spotted in in plants so that's meaning eight are adults. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think I caught everything in those numbers there. Ah, apparently spotted salamanders will actually only breed in pools which are fish-free. So it's good there's no fish, otherwise none of this would actually be happening. Ah, salamanders have good taste. They found a good pond. Yeah, they know what they're up to. Um, yeah. Ah, yeah, so they actually have... I just thought I'd check, because obviously we were talking about the plethodontids, which don't have a um, larval stage. These ones do. They have the kind of traditional um, stages where they are embryos for about a month or two months, then they turn into larvae, then they bowl around. Sometimes they overwinter in the pond, but mostly they don't. And then they metamorphose and go and get eaten by pitcher plants. (laughs) Wonderful. What a wonderful, wonderful life. What a... I can see it now. <laughs> spending a spending a beautiful time in this fishless pool and then venturing out onto the blanket bog, falling into a strange hole. Or climbing in some cases. And getting slowly digested over the length of three to nineteen days. <laughs> ah. Gosh, you would really be hoping for three, wouldn't you? But Oh boy, would you? Yeah. Or we'd be hoping for exceedingly heavy rain to wash you out and save you. It's the dream, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, they saw 35 of these trapped salamanders, the average snout event length of which was 29.7 millimetres. So, small, small, small. Pitiful. Yeah. And uh, what they worked out was that 155 milligrams dry weight is the weight of uh, one of those tiny little salamanders. And that would actually contain enough nitrogen to build three pitcher leaves, according to their calculations. So, you can see that these salamanders actually could be quite an important resource. And, uh, yeah, they estimate that one in 20 of the 1,350 emerging salamanders probably fell prey to these plants. So it's quite a um, quite a significant number being predated by these plants. And um, Yeah, and a significant value to the plants. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, a big deal in both ways. Yeah, and they're not sure exactly why they enter the pitcher plants. It could be that they can see or smell that there's insects in there and they're tempted to go and try and eat them. Or they're going in there for security, or it's just random. But they do suspect it's, it's just dumb luck. Yeah, they suspect it's non-random <laughs> because um, it does seem that there's more salamanders ending up in there than would happen by random chance. But they didn't uh, formally kind of measure that, and it's also unclear it why. Would be difficult to measure for one thing. Yeah, well, you'd have to kind of map out the likely trajectories of ev- of however many salamanders. We did do that, though, didn't we? we? There was a paper where they were looking at the trajectories of uh, newts with that um, fluorescent dye. To- yeah. Um, that was in the UK. You could totally do that. You could, um, you could use harmonic tracking on a few, sort of get an idea of how they move through the landscape. Build a model of some of some harmonic tracked ones, or or with the die, something like that. What's harmonic tracking? Harmonic tracking is this, where you basically attach this little reflective 
thing. You know, it's not a transmitter. It's just this bit of reflective stuff to uh, to your target species. Then you have a uh, harmonic emitter, and that will emit a signal. It will reflect off the bit attached to the animal and then come back. So it's like a... It's like sonar. Um, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Um, but it's basically a nice way of tracking very, very small animals that can't hold a device that needs to emit a signal. Hmm. Um, it's not appropriate for everything because it has a very limited range. You'd have to be on the surface for it to work as well, right? Yeah, I don't know how well it would do in high humidity or high like water surrounding the uh, surrounding the uh, reflective the reflective part. But they have done it on other amphibians. I don't know if they have done them in amphibians while they're in like substantial contact with water and like moss. Right. But yeah, the the point is. I think it would be possible to get an estimate of how frequently you'd expect a salamander to fall into a pitcher plant. Whether it's worth that effort to answer that very specific question, <laughs> yeah, no. I don't um, know, because yeah. that would harmonic trans uh, transmitters aren't super. Oh, sorry, harmonic emitters aren't super cheap. Right, right, right. So it's a it's a possible thing, but whether or not anyone will ever do it, unknown. So. Another unknown is that um, why yeah. the salamanders that end up in the pitcher plants actually eventually die. It's not clear whether or not the low pH in the pitcher kills them or whether the microorganisms which are living in the pitcher plants as inquiline visitors are killing them or whether they just die of starvation or whether the pitcher plants get too hot because they are out in the sun and inside them it might get too hot. They don't know why the salamanders die. But they do die, and they do seem to be eaten by the plants. Um, but as we kind of discussed, this this paper kind of discovers this phenomenon, but it leaves a lot more questions about... It does. I think that's sort of the purpose of the scientific naturalist uh, papers, is to, is to put it into context and be like, okay, what could this be implying? Where should things go from here on out? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they do say that it's quite surprising, because these are quite well-known species, both of them the pitch plant and mm. the uh, spotted salamander. So to discover an interaction like this, which has kind of previously been not known, is uh, quite a surprise and quite exciting. And it's just cool. I mean, it's a very... Uh, it captures the imagination, doesn't it? These little salamanders walking across this bog, falling into pitcher plants. they got some good pictures in there too of them sort of trapped in there. <laughs> yeah, they've got guys. some really upsetting photos. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit tragic, but and there's a video. I mean, it's not tragic for the uh, pitcher plant, is it? Pitcher plants having a whale of a time. Yeah, it's um. Enough. There's also a video on the internet of the salamanders kind of wiggling around in there, stuck, which is sad. Oh well, I'll skip that one. Yeah, but um, yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> very good what a thing it, to is, say. it is a very good paper very yes good. Uh, it's, that's very astute <laughs> I like the paper um, cool I think that pretty much wraps up our uh, discussion of salamanders and their ways doesn't it and their dealings with plants sometimes plants can give you an opportunity to escape larger bullying salamanders but other times salamand- uh, plants can be a uh, horrible 
and slow death. <laughs> yeah. Salamanders and plants. Complicated world. Um, mm. Well, should we uh, species of bi-week it? Oh, yes. Species of bi-week time. <laughs> So this is a paper by Sugawara, Watabi, Yoshikawa and Nagano from 2018. Morphological molecular analyses of Hanobius dunny reveal a new species from Shikoku, Japan, published in Herpetologica. And it's a salamander. It is. It's a salamander that looks like a sausage. Yeah, it does. It looks like it looks exactly like a sausage. It looks like a sausage yep. which is sort of um, mostly cooked but not yet browned. Yeah, half done. Yeah, so, you know, you you wouldn't want to eat it. It would probably be raw in the middle. Um, it's that kind of pallid grey sort of shiny. The, yeah, the water sausage. Beautiful <laughs> new salamander. Common name. Yeah. Um, yeah, so prior to this, there is a genus called Hanobius, which is endemic to Japan. It has 22 species up till this paper was published last year. And... Um, for this paper, we're in southwest Japan on an island called Shikoku, which is the smallest of Japan's major islands, in an area called uh, Tosa Himizu. And um, basically, they were thought to be Hanobius dunai, but the salamanders that they found in this area were different to that species, both morphologically and genetically. And so they elected to describe this new species, which they've called Hanobius Tosa Shimizuensis. Which is great. It just means... It's a bit of a mouthful. It, it, but it is, but it looks nice. It makes perfect sense. It looks nice written down. It's got some good sounds in it. It does. It's got yeah. It's got that shh sound, which I like. It's got the zzz, which is always good. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Tosashimizuensis. Yeah. Straight to the point. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it just means derived from Tosashimizu City which is in Kochi Prefecture, where this new species occurs. And the suggested common name in Japanese is Tosa Shimizu Sans... Oh, man, let me try that again. To, tosa Shimizu Sanshuao. That's the best I can do. That's a pretty good effort. I mean, not that I would know if you were correct or not. Let me but... try it again, but faster. Tosa Shimizu Sanshuao. <laughs> that was... That was spot on. And uh, because of the small range, <laughs> it definitely wasn't. And I apologise if there's any Japanese speakers listening. Because of the small range and the restricted availability of the breeding habitat of this species, they actually elected not to um, put too much information about the locality in the paper, which is cool. Um, you, have to co- you have to contact the corresponding author or the Tokushima Prefectural Museum if you want to find out where they actually are, which is probably good because... Um, yeah, they have a very small distribution area of about... Not- 0.35 kilometres squared, right? Yeah. Just nothing. And in 2001, there was actually only one single uh, functioning breeding mm. pond. They were breeding in three ponds, but only one of them was actually allowing the uh, young to survive up until 2001, when a local zoo called One Park Kochi Animal Land began building artificial ponds, of which it has now completed seven, and they're all being used for breeding by this species. So this... Um, yeah, the action by this local uh, zoological park has actually 
quite likely save the species, which is a great thing. And um, they don't mm. they don't want to mess that all up by telling everyone where they are, which makes sense. We do know that they are a lentic species, so they um, lay their eggs and develop in still water, not running water. They're not that big, are they? Sixty five millimeter SVL in males and sixty six yeah. for females. So, so like a cocktail sausage. Yeah, but I guess they've also got the tail on the end. So maybe like a uh, chipolata. Mm, a small chipolata. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, they're nice. They're nice looking little things. You can tell it apart from the uh, species they were thought to be, which is um, Hanobius dunai, because it lacks distinct black spots on the dorsum, and they're actually replaced by white spots on the venter. So if you see one with distinct black spots on its back you're looking at dunai and if it doesn't have those but has white spots on the venter flip it over oh it's tosa shimizuensis and <laughs> when the egg sacs are deposited in water they also look different they're coil shaped whereas dunai have a kind of banana shaped egg so that's another way to tell them apart in the field what else? Oh, they reckon there's probably around 200 individuals if uh, the sort of sex ratios remain consistent between other closely related salamanders. Mm. So, not very many, very restricted range, but people are aware and sort of protecting their breeding ponds. Yeah, right? Yeah, it does so seem like it. In that sense, there's some hope. Yeah, and it does seem as though they mentioned the landowners a couple of times, and the landowners, it seems, were quite sensitive to the scientists' um, sort of uh, actions, and they were, you know, they didn't take many samples and stuff like that because they just, you know, they didn't want to be impeding on a very small population. So, yeah, this whole paper, it, yeah. it does definitely uh, represent some really responsible science which is cool you know they're not saying where exactly they are they're not taking more specimens than they absolutely need to to sort of register them as a species and uh yeah they've discovered a nice little new legged sausage <laughs> they've got such tiny cute feet <laughs> yeah their feet are pretty ridiculous the habitat looks quite nice sort of a sparse woodland with a little pool Lots of leaves, quite shady, um, and the babies look nice. They look like they, you know, I mean, they look like your classic larval salamander, like a little um, axolotl type thing, but tiny, um, <laughs> with a nice black spotty tail and a brown body. Good looking species. Yeah, in, I like them. Yeah, we laughed when we first saw them because they do look. Yeah. Funny. Um, quite <laughs> well they look like they're half finished yeah you know it's like someone sketched a salamander then gave up halfway <laughs> yeah and didn't like correct the proportions and just like oh that will it's close enough yeah even do. even the like because they're ribbed aren't they they've got these like mm. but they're very subtly ribbed like not as dramatically as lots of salamanders you see um but yeah funny little funny little things um <laughs> yeah welcome to science cool name Cool species. Yeah. Cool paper. Yeah. Yeah, so that's our species of the bi week. It is Hanobius Tosa Shimizuensis. All right. And that's salamanders. Well, that's everything you need to know about salamanders. salamanders and plants. Well, I mean, not probably not really. <laughs> no, that's probably But not. then it depends on who you are and how much you actually do need to know about salamanders and plants. For most people, it's probably enough, but yeah. 
maybe we'll revisit some. Maybe. maybe. Um, but yeah, we've got. Yeah, when we get a paper about Venus flytraps taking salamanders. Oh, that'd be the day. Those ones that don't climb but actually fly, and then they land on the Venus flytraps and they take them out. That'd be a wild, wild world. It could happen. Right. So, any other business? Um, we got a few emails actually, uh, a few messages regarding our call for snake species which form breeding balls. Mm, yes. Um, I saw. What have we got? I saw one video on Facebook of um, this was one I independently found of um, our native grass snakes, Natrix helvetica, engaged in a big breeding ball. Um, Interesting. Yeah, in, they were sort of sitting on top of some. Um, bracken which is like a fern um and they were well i think it is a fern and they were all just kind of all wrapped up together there was about i don't know eight or nine of them um hmm. so it was unclear to me which were males and females but that was definitely a breeding ball which is cool so there's that's okay that's one example um so that that means it does occur out of america that's indeed. good that's a good start uh we had a few people email us about anacondas which i think we um, might have alluded to in the episode that anacondas do it um did we or didn't we i can't remember I certainly thought it i'm gonna i'm gonna say maybe maybe we may have but yeah so we had yeah. jenny from canada who said anacondas form breeding bulls giant snake swarms uh up to 12 males coil around one female so um <laughs> giant snake swarm yeah what a wonderful phrase <laughs> yeah i think that's a quote from the life science article maybe uh but yeah the female who's much bigger seems to kind of choose the male that she wants, potentially. Um, uh, many males may mate with females, so that's anacondas. Burmese pythons also do it. Um, there's been big aggregations of Burmese pythons. Uh, Where? In Florida. Hmm. Okay. Let me just see. So, okay, that's interesting. Diamond pythons, it's also been seen in. Um, and and diamond. Remind me where diamond pythons come from again. Uh, Australia. Okay. Around like Sydney area, um, and yeah. So there was also a record of Indian pythons doing it. Um, well, at least an aggregation of Indian pythons. Whether or not they were actually uh, reproducing was unclear. Um, <laughs> they might have just been hanging around in yeah. the same spot. Yeah, so this aggregation in Florida of Burmese pythons contained seven males and one female, and they were kind of really close to each other. It doesn't seem whether or not... It's unclear whether or not they uh, actually were all mating at one time. Mm. But there was three above ground and one five below ground, so it doesn't actually look like they were all kind of gathered mating, but all the males were kind of hanging around. Um, but there was some sort of aggregation. Yeah, so whether or not... It's a, oh, there's another photo... Yeah, four male, one female, and they're all kind of wrapped up together. So that probably does look like a little breeding ball. Um, yeah, that counts. Yeah, so, I'm happy with so that. yeah, we'll yeah. add Burmese pythons to the list. Uh, so thank you very much, Jenny, for those. And she also sent us um, a paper about explosive breeding aggregations in Agilichnis saltator, which is a, a neotropical frog in Costa Rica. And um, what these frogs do is they, there's liana vines growing over temporary swamps after heavy rains. And what they do is they actually, they kind of got these, well, we've talked about 
sort of similar things on the podcast i think where some frogs can like open their arms and sort of semi-glide because of their flappy skin well these frogs actually parachute down from the treetops to land on liana vines and then they all get in a big huddle and they mate and then all the eggs drop down into the swamp below so they're basically yeah parachuting in mating aggregations on these vines yeah just carnage carnage um and uh yeah then all the sort of uh, eggs end up in the water down below where they can start to develop. So, yes, not unique to snakes. Also, frogs doing it. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. Then we also, there's more. There's more breeding aggregation stuff. Um, Scott Iper, he told us that uh, he's heard of green snakes, uh, Dendrolaphus punctulata breeding balls. He also once found eight Dendrolaphus in a tree hollow together once. He's didn't want to say for sure that it was a breeding bull, but um, yeah, there's certainly some evidence of that, of the breeding bulls in that species. And uh, he also mentioned diamond pythons, which uh, I just mentioned because they were in the Burmese python paper that Jenny sent. So Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, we also had Tom Wells. He also told us that uh, anacondas do breeding bulls and um, had an interesting discussion with him about breeding bulls and sexual dimorphism you know perhaps there's a role for smaller males being able to subdue a female by teaming up some pretty gross um sort of That's speculation but uh interesting is it uh, just just in case you know are there papers looking at making success of like sneaky males for snakes not as far as i know yeah because i know there's like cuttlefish yeah, stuff the classic sneaky cuttlefish other yeah, like there's other species. I mean, it's a documented thing. Well, and in, even in the Anolis um, paper, you remember that awesome paper that did the... Oh, looking at their uh, encounters. The territoriality and how territoriality wasn't actually leading to uh, siring more offspring because there were sneaky males and there was this sort of breakdown um, and there was actually a lot of female mate selection going on under the surface that was harder to find yeah well it could be there's a similarly complicated picture yeah oh that's yeah that's very complicated isn't it yeah um but yeah so basically Mm. there's lots of different snake species there there's the drendrolaphus punctulata there's diamond pythons uh which are umbralia spilota spilota there's anacondas um and yeah grass snakes too um that's on top of the uh, garter snakes, which we were talking about in the episode. So, yeah, thank you very much to everyone who got in touch with us. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. Really cool. Uh, yeah. Nothing from Africa or Southeast Asia, as far as we know yet, but that might be no more a bias of listenership than anything else. Yeah. And research. Mm. Um, so, the other thing we had people... I suppose Burmese pythons sort of count, but don't. Because it, sort of. Sort of count. They were, they're a half point. Well, there's definitely Burmese pythons in Southeast Asia, but yeah, we they didn't. Yeah, it was the non-native ones. Which oh, and you didn't didn't you say Indian pythons too? Didn't you? Yes. Okay, so what am I talking about? I'm just skipping over but two species. I don't know the Indian one. The Indian python bit was like there were snakes grouped together, but it wasn't necessarily definitely mating. Hmm. Okay. So they were hanging out in a gang. It could just be a squad. It could just be a squad rolling on some rats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just don't know. Yeah. Um. But yeah. The other thing which people got in touch with us about was the um, thermogenesis, which we were talking about in the last episode where pythons were coiling around their eggs and shivering to warm them up. And um, 
we had a really cool video from Scott Iper where he actually found a wild carpet python and it was doing thermogenesis and he filmed it and he was kind enough to put it on Facebook for us and I shared that on our Facebook last week so go and hunt out that video. Uh, yeah, that is really neat. It's really neat. Cool. Unfortunately, um, I talked to Scott about it and he said that snake, it laid its eggs in a like suburban garden basically which wouldn't inherent, yeah. inherently have been an issue but um, she actually abandoned the eggs eventually and... He then took them into captivity and tried to incubate them, but they were all duds. So um, it mm. might be that she'd worked out they were duds and then didn't elect to incubate them. Or, yeah, it's a bit of an unclear situation. Yeah. But regardless, the video is super cool. You can see her trying to get the eggs warm. Awesome. Yeah, I think Scott Seriously awesome. Scott said to yeah. me that it just recently rained, so maybe the air was a bit cooler and she mm. was feeling the need to... Just after a brief shower, yeah. 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 So thank you, Scott, for that. And we also had uh, Rob Stone get in touch of uh, Morelia Py- Python Radio fame, and he said that um, other species of python have actually... There's um, anecdotal evidence from people who keep them in captivity that some species of python which... Uh, were not mentioned or were mentioned in the Donado paper that we covered last week, actually do warm up their eggs. I think in every one of the Spilota subspecies, except, he says, possibly Imbricata, um, but also uh, Bredel's pythons and olive pythons and uh, green tree pythons too, which actually Donado said in his paper they didn't, although they did have a very small sample size. So um, obviously there's not they did. there's not any like, we don't have access to any like formalized data about that stuff, but um, keepers of these species with uh, data loggers reckon they've seen those species warming up their eggs. So there's um, there's definitely anecdotal evidence for that, which is interesting. And it's probably a massive untapped resource for this kind of information because what that Donado paper was doing was measuring the temperature in captive snakes in, in uh, sort of controlled nest boxes, which is really a situation which is replicated, you know, with lots of people who, who breed these snakes. Um, so yeah, mm. obviously there's no sort of like formal record of that, but there's certainly some uh, quite compelling um, anecdotal evidence. No, but there could be. If people have recorded this stuff, then it could all be centralised and put together and then patterns drawn from it. Yeah. While it's still sort of disparate and anecdotal, it's very difficult to judge how uh, consistent or... Uh, yeah, well, how consistent that sort of pattern is, whether they do it or not. So, uh, depending on how much there is, then then maybe maybe you can make a strong case for it. Yeah. Either way. Yeah, and I mean, it wouldn't take a huge amount of cake, a huge amount of snakes to make a convincing case, really, to see a pattern. No, as long as as long as people sort of documented the sort of rough conditions they were in, I think if you just had enough, you could probably. You could probably work it out. Yeah. You'd probably tease out that sort of pattern. Yeah. A careful bit of modelling. Yeah, you wouldn't need the sort of VO2 max stuff, the sort of um, uh, respirometer type setup that they had in that paper to measure the metabolism changes if you had like enough cases where there was compelling different ambient temperature to within the egg mass. Mm. And it was sort of... And, and, a di- and a big enough difference in those temperatures. Yeah. Because a very small effect would be very hard to detect regardless of how many animals you have. Yeah. yeah. So if it was if it was sizable, mm. and if you had a decent number so you could get away from all the slight variation between individual keepers and their methods and their just their ways of detecting uh, temperature, then yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely room for some more discovery in that vein. And perhaps, perhaps it is more widespread in pythons than... Uh, 
Donato's paper let on. Maybe, or maybe, maybe it. I mean, we we said sort of during the episode. Maybe it requires some sort of shock to the system. Mm, yeah, it could to be that. elicit it. Mm. I mean, Scott's video with the the shower or something like that. Maybe it isn't just temperature that pushes it. Maybe it's a yeah, a cold snap or heavy rain or something like that. Yeah, or even something you know unique to that snake's development something that it experienced might trigger it yeah be anything yeah but yeah i think that's all my any other business so thank you for everyone who got in touch with us and uh yeah Mm, thank you very much interested in these breeding ball things and this week this bi-week's mission is to find out how slimy those uh plethodon glutinosis actually are (laughs) <laughs> that is i feel like that is a big ask yeah i know we might get someone done yeah uh but yeah i think um have you got anything else to add i don't no cool i'm no i'm good i enjoyed reading about salamanders um even if the second salamander paper was a little bit sad and, yeah but i suppose it's happy for the pitcher plants so i should just how cool the pitcher plants were made up for sad. it as well to some extent oh yeah Sweet. Yeah. Well, then, in that case, all that remains to be said is uh, you can get in touch with us if you want to tell us about slimy salamanders, facebook.com slash herphighlights, uh, or we're on Twitter at herphighlights. Um, or you can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. That's it, really, isn't it? I think that's exactly it. I think all that's left is to thank people for listening and uh, hope you'll tune in in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, do carry on. <laughs> what should I do? Should I just carry on? We can have a little sneeze in the podcast. No, I'll do it again. No, I would. I would. I would cut that. <laughs> yeah, people don't. People don't want to be sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> uh.